This is Lead with a Question. Innovation, in a nutshell, is the business of seeing an edge that may someday become the center. That's what innovation is. And if you stack the deck in your favor of seeing those edges, right, with people that are different, then you're likely to discover, whether it's through a mistake of the eye or a vehement debate at two in the morning or whatever the case may be, that edge that may become the center. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Every organization has a culture, whether it be a family, a company, or even a sports team. Most of the time, there's an unspoken assumption that people on that team will share a set of attributes and values. Now, over time, this can lead to a homogenizing effect, also known as groupthink. Deviations become less frequent because they disrupt the balance. But in our ever-changing world, is that really what we want? Our guest today has spent years building cultures, teams, and platforms with a singular focus, giving new ideas the oxygen they need. He'll help us reflect on the question, how can we protect creative thinking? A conversation with Scott Belsky on this episode of Lead with a Question. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Um, certainly, the intersection of creativity, technology, and culture is is my passion. I feel I find that these uh, various parts of our lives feed each other, um, are seldom understood, and uh, and and I think are also the distinct overlaps that only humans can truly uh, add value through in a world that is increasingly automated and uh, and where labor is increasingly commoditized. And so it's a super interesting area for me to focus on. My, uh, my background is um, with these interests in design, technology, and, uh, and creativity. I've always tried to find the uh, intersection of those things throughout my career. Um, I spent some time in a uh, leadership development role at Goldman Sachs and, uh, and wanted to apply some of those models and frameworks to what I considered the most disorganized community on the planet, which is the creative industry and the creative community. These are the people that make our lives worth living. They help us resonate with the news and the world that's happening around us. They compel us to buy things, engage with things, believe in things, be moved by things. And yet a lot of creative people feel like they live their careers, at least at the mercy of circumstance. And they seldom get attribution for their work. 
And, uh, and, and I just thought that was such a huge opportunity. And so Behance was founded with this mission to help organize and empower the creative world. Behance was five years of bootstrapping, a couple of years as a venture-backed company. We were acquired by Adobe in late 2012. And that really is where my relationship with Adobe began. Came in at a time when the company was trying to go from product to subscription, traditional you know, uh, purchase to subscription, and, and, and with that, deliver a lot of value to those who subscribe, you know, how do we bring the cloud to the cloud? How do we allow people to actually use some of these products on mobile and then continue on desktop or continue on web or start on web? Um, how do we allow uh, capabilities that are powered by AI to be delivered into the flagship products on the desktop, you know, through the cloud? And it was just an incredible experience over the years. I guess now it's been 10 years since the acquisition. I took a small Hiatus has a year or so of an investor full-time, but then came back a little over five years ago in this role as chief product officer. And I've been trying to uh, really focus on the future of creativity. To your earlier question, you know, one of the things I firmly uh, learned and, you know, and drive a lot of our strategy through is this belief that everyone's creative, but the majority of the world is outcome-oriented. And then there's a smaller percentage of the world that's process-oriented in their creativity. An outcome-oriented creative just wants to get something done. So they want to merge two videos. They want to fix a photograph and make it look better. They want to apply a filter. You know, they want to just have, they have an output in mind and they don't really care exactly if it's a few degrees off of what they had in mind, as long as it's directionally correct. And, uh, and this is where all of us, you know, want to, want to portray ourselves and stand out on social media that we want to stand out at school and at work through our creativity. And I believe that whereas in past decades, people have succeeded at work through their productivity by getting more and more done more quickly, I think that in the future, we're going to stand out at work and in school and even in our own lives, not by being more productive, but by being more creative. And a lot of uh, us are outcome oriented. And so we want to start with a template. We want to use some of the generative AI tools to do a text prompt and come out with something that looks great. We're satisfied with that. And those are outcome-oriented creatives. A smaller percentage of the world is what I like to call process-oriented. And that means that we actually care as much, if not more, about the process that went into the outcome as we do about the outcome. We want things to be pixel perfect. We want it to be that color red as opposed to that color red. We want to make sure that it's rounded corners as opposed to straight corners. And these are folks who are not happy with the outcome of generative AI or with templates because we have a very precise view of what we want to do and the, the process matters, right? And, and that has been the lifeblood of Adobe's business forever. And so I think part of our objective these days at Adobe is to grab a lot more people that are outcome-oriented, but also ultimately help these outcome-oriented people start to care more about the process, which is good for them. It makes them stand out further, and it's also good for the business. I love that breakdown. Scott, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really really interesting breakdown and and I love sort of this idea that there's there's a confluence of factors that are sort of redefining maybe the creative process in a lot of ways and helping us understand, you know, the different components that make up what creativity is. Um so so yeah, that's a that's a great foundation. Chris, what what would you like to share on that? Yeah, I I really uh, appreciate that. I think, you know, it's interesting because when we look at 
you know, people like you, Scott, you've, uh, you know, you kind of came off the DeLorean, right? Like 10 years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, as you were building this stuff and, you know, you already saw this future. Uh, and there's people in this category we consider like, you know, Daniel Pink, you know, just people that were seeing things right early and this convergence of forces, you could say, um, you know, now, right. on LinkedIn, it's shifted, you know, they're calling it creators versus, you know, influencers. Um, and you know, what does that mean? Right. Ultimately is, is what you're getting at. And, um, I love that description because on the one hand, it's, you know, it's, it's wide open and kind of grassroots. I'm curious too, like, as we think about, you know, how do you, uh, as a, you know, as, as you think about what this means for, for leaders, right. As to how they lead in that process way, right. And how they now, you know, cause on the one hand, there's the consumer side and this is everybody. Right. And then inside organizations too, as they move cultures and they harness this movement of, or they move the movement of creators as you've done, right. What are some considerations or things that you've experienced or prints your kind of first principles uh, as a leader that have guided you uh, in, in, ter- in that, in that context? That's a great question. And I, um, you know, I am uh, ultimately a product leader. So I lead teams building products, engineers, designers, and product people. And, and, uh, and I, I do think often about the, um, the impact on leadership, you know, as, uh, as creativity becomes more important, you know, and creativity becomes the new productivity. Whereas leaders used to be ruthless about, again, measuring and rewarding for productivity these days i believe we have to focus as much as how our people right that we lead are planting the flag as much as building the road and traversing the road as fast as possible which is the productivity side of things um i do believe that we have to build organizations not just road builders but also flag planters i um and a big part of that is the narrative. You know, I like to think that as leaders, we are driving a car across country with the windows blacked out and all of our teams in the back seat. And the teams are liable to go crazy, uh, stir crazy, if we're not narrating for them the progress that we're making. I've been fascinated by the research around progress begetting progress. I worked with a woman named Teresa Mabale when I was at um, Harvard Business School, who focused on motivation and creativity in organizations. And if I were to summarize all of her research down to one finding, it was that progress begets progress. And people make more progress than they feel like they're, they're, they're making progress. And that's the leader's job, to merchandise the progress that our teams are making to our teams. And it's interesting how we use creative capabilities to merchandise products and services you know, the hundreds of billions of dollars spent annually in creative marketing and advertising. And yet we don't use some of our, our, those same tools and techniques to get our own teams to feel the progress that they're making and understand where the flag is planted. So narrative, you know, being the steward of a narrative is something that I think leaders, the best leaders increasingly do very, very well. And, um, and then, um, and then also, measuring teams and incentivizing and empowering teams to also set narratives for their own products. You know, I oftentimes ask my teams before a review, 
what's the Zen of this? You know, what is ultimately step back? Like, why does this matter in the world? Um, it's a test of empathy with the customer and the problem the customer is ultimately feeling. I do the same thing with founders, you know, when I meet with them as a startup seed investor, try and understand what the problem is they're trying to solve. What's the Zen of this, of this product? Um, what's the soul? Awesome, Scott. I was um, very captivated by your book, The Messy Middle. I think that um, such a great topic and theme, especially for founders and, and, and leaders and, and startups, you know, there's this allure to, to be a founder and to build things. But once you get into it, I think the truths that you tell in that book are very insightful for people in the middle of it all, right? Um, I, when I lived in California, I would listen to your book as I would commute into San Jose. And I was that guy that would press pause on the audiobook so I can voice dictate notes that stood out to me. I actually have my notes that I pulled up. I found it last night. I, I forgot that I had notes about your book and on this topic of leaders, there were some things that stood out to me. So I'd love to kind of go there a little bit and maybe you can expand upon some of these thoughts. Um, a new leader introduced to a team is like experiencing an organ transplant. That really stood out to me because I've been a new leader in healthcare, you know, joining a new facility, right? Where people stare at you in the hallways and kind of whisper or <laughs> in a meeting, they're a little bit guarded. Like, how's this guy going to lead our team? Um, so that was very true. It rang true. I had a leader that said, you know, you don't go in there swinging an ax and trying to change a bunch of stuff when you start with a new team. And that really, I felt like that new organ that you described. Um, what, um, what other things for leaders that are, are joining teams that are entering this new era, what are some other kind of insights that you can give as, as we're approaching this creative, you know, era in the workplace? Yeah, well, I, I think a, a few different things. I mean, if you take a step back, I think companies are realizing that they increasingly have to also be communities. And it's a fascinating trend. Why is it happening? Is it because it's harder to reach customers or potential customers via advertising than ever before? Is it because people have become tired and wary and, uh, and skeptical of promotions and marketing emails? as we become numb to all of this? You know, is it sort of the shifts of uh, social media and our distrust of the algorithms and why they're feeding us what they're feeding us? There's something very authentic about joining uh, the community associated with the brand, connecting with real customers and people there. And there's also a desire to have less of a relationship just with a corporate brand and more relationship with people. You know, if you look at a yes. lot of the great startups now, they're leaders directly interact with their customers every day on social. And uh, and when something doesn't feel right and customers reach out, executives respond uh, with human language and humility. It's something that I've tried to do, you know, being in a big company like Adobe. And I think that, you know, for a few years, I was looked at with a little skepticism, like, you're not supposed to do that. That's supposed to go through the PR organization that's mm. supposed to be approved and it's supposed to use a certain handle. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like if a customer is talking about our product, like I want to engage with that customer. I want to learn. I want them to know that we're Why listening. Not? Right. 
And uh, but that's believe it or not, that's not intuitive in a large organization because everyone's not. always managing with risk. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, if some random person speaks on behalf of the company and gets something wrong, oh, you know, then all hell breaks loose. And and uh, and so there's there's a there's a cultural change, I think, in the way that companies need to be boiled down to people and people be, need to be able to uh, to interact with customers. And so when it comes to hiring and the new generation of leaders, you know, I think that, uh, you know, first of all, you have to have people that come in that are great listeners, but are also willing to uh, change and, you know, challenge process and convention. Um, I think that the, uh, you know, there's a trend, I believe that's going to happen over the coming years, which is that a lot of large companies are going to realize how much excess they have. You know, we just went through an era 10 years or so. Uh, I like to call it the carbs era, where we threw, uh, we threw money at every problem. We threw people at every problem. It was sort of like feeling depressed and eating Doritos, you know, as opposed to the muscle era we're entering, which is you want to feel good, go to the gym, you know, go build muscle, build resilience, you know, build strength it, the hard way with the recognition that resourcefulness is more valuable than resources over time. Don't so just pay for the optics, right? Yeah. So we're entering an era, I think, where that's true. I think that will impact the types of leaders we build for our teams, the way we measure our teams. And, and uh, you know, in, in, the, in the messy middle, you know, the messy middle as a construct, it's all about what happens in between the starts and finishes that doesn't get enough airtime. And it really all boils down to enduring the lows and optimizing the highs, you know, and uh, and and optimizing everything that works not only in the product but also in how the team works, right? And A/B testing the way you run as an organization is important. But on the endurance side, you know, I talk about about grafting on new leaders, and I, I acknowledge the fact that we spend so much time and money on hiring talent. We are willing to pay 20% of someone's salary. We're willing to spend tons of time interviewing people, but we spend We're very looking little- We're looking externally. Energy. Yeah, yeah, everything. And, and yet we spend so little energy on grafting talent to the team. And so it's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. We, 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 we try so hard to find an all-star that we bring that person into the organization and it's like up to her to succeed or fail, right? It's like no, no efforts right. to graft. Um, and and what are so what does grafting look like? And you know, part of the analogy I use is suppressing the team's immune system to allow a new organ to take hold. You know, I had a great experience with this when we hired our first COO for Behance, a guy named Will Allen. And he uh, you know, he came in at a time where we had maybe 20 people or so, and uh, and it was a really well-oiled machine with a really strong immune system. When someone joined, we knew whether they were gonna be as effective and committed or not, and we could make that decision quickly. Um, he joined and he had new processes he brought in. He had a lot of experiences from where he had worked previously, like TED conferences where he started their whole web effort and a few other experiences. And of course, when you hire someone who's strong, they're going to challenge your processes. They're going to make people feel uncomfortable. And I had a line out of my office. I felt, I remember of people who are basically saying, this guy is not going to work. You know, and I realized either we let go, let him go, or we suppress the immune system and convince the team to allow him to take hold and change us a little bit. And lo and behold, over the next couple of months, he really transformed the business. Love that. Yeah, I think the the allure of a new leader coming in is to, they want to win over the team, right? They want to they come across as smart 
and they want to say, hey, I actually, this doesn't work this way. I'm looking at this process. We did it this way over here. And I, I always have an, you know, I'm not comfortable with that with a new leader, just like you described, but you just described the benefits of a team being open to different thinking. And so I always come at it from the leadership standpoint that you just, you know, framed up the team aspect. So very insightful. Yeah. I think this ties back to, uh, Scott, and I loved your description twofold. One about, you know, being in a brand that it's no longer being the man behind the curtain. Like that just isn't real for people, right. That experience the brands. Um, and then just really owning that narrative throughout, right. It's inside out. It's, it, uh, it feels, and with that, it goes back to the flag you're talking about earlier, you know, anchoring and there's power. There seems to be so much power in that. And you, you know, shared an article on medium recently that is, it sets a flag, right? It's an anchor uh, about the future. And, you know, it seems like the power lies in, you know, not this, and, and I think we've seen this play out in any technology that's, that's emerged. And, you know, we could look back as far as business model shifts to things like, you know, when iTunes happened, right. What that meant for the mu music industry and their big shifts right now, this AI one is it's, it feels not less linear, right. It's not as clear for artists, what this will mean, you know, for them or, or for everybody else. Right. Uh, anybody in any profession really. Um, but you're painting a picture that's hopeful, and it's not dystopian, right? The things we see out there. And it, it kind of harkens back. You, you have a quote in there that I, that I really love. Uh, and it, it seems to harken back to that moment where, you know, Steve Jobs is talking about uh, what the PCs, what the computer can do. And he compares it to the bicycle, right? And he's saying, this is going to amplify, right? It's not going to kill off all these jobs. Like, well, yes, it'll have impacts. But the reality is, is look what it's going to do for you personally. And you state this, it says, as more human jobs become assisted, automated, or replaced by artificial intelligence, we must spend our hours where we have a competitive advantage over machines, developing new ideas, expressing old things in new ways, innovating process, and crafting the story that infuses our creations with meaning. And inherent in that, you know, we we also believe deeply, and you know, you've shared uh, or alluded to some of this in the notion of you know collaboration, co-creation how people build things together as teams. And so we're curious, like, how do you see that future too playing out with, in the context of what we call co-creation or in partnership with others uh, as it relates to the future? No, that's a great, great question, Chris. I, I, I think about, um, well, there's a macro trend, which is that every function of an organization is becoming a multiplayer function. So you used to have a world in which financial analysis was done by that team. And procurement was done by that team and design was done by that team. And now the next generation of tools for all of these functions are multiplayer such that not only the practitioner, but also all the stakeholders are involved. Everyone is seeing the financial planning process and has input and has transparency. You know, everyone is participating in what the legal review is and how the terms of service are evolving. And Everyone's a stakeholder design from the developers to the copywriters to the CEO, right? Everyone's jumping in and seeing the next generation of the product. It's a really profound shift and it's powering a lot of new startups that are reimagining every function of an organization. It's also changing the nature of the jobs of these functions, right? Instead of having 
lots of people doing all this media work, you'll have smaller numbers of people who are really leading the function and being the steward of the stakeholders and, and, and making sure that it engages the whole organization. It's an interesting, uh, one of the interesting sort of side effects of all this is, um, is the, the benefit of having diverse views, you know, in the mix of every function and how it operates. The, the, the view I've always taken about diversity on a team is um, from a pure like outcome perspective is that you're stacking the deck in, in favor of having people who see things at the edge of reason um, as it relates to the rest of the group. So what I mean by that is, you know, we're all talking, if we all have a similar background and went to similar schools and whatever else, then we all agree on what's reasonable. And we also all agree on what's unreasonable. But when you bring someone into the mix that has a completely different background and completely different skill set, speaks a different language, whatever the differences are that that person brings to the table, they're more likely to see something that, you know, we think is unreasonable that they think is reasonable. And as they see that, and if we respect that person, they will start to expand our aperture of the, the scope of possibilities. And that and, and innovation in a nutshell is the business of seeing an edge that may someday become the center. If that's what innovation is. And if you stack the deck in your favor of seeing those edges, right, with people that are different, then you're likely to discover, whether it's through a mistake of the eye or a vehement debate at two in the morning or whatever the case may be, that edge that may become the center. So back to my point about every function becoming a collaborative function with different people across the organization involved. Wow. Like, how is that going to advance every function of how an organization works? You know, is, is, every, is every part of business and, and work itself up for reimagination with all these new voices? Imagine having designers in the mix with the procurement organization or with the, uh, you know, or with the... Um, legal organization, you get breakthroughs. You get breakthroughs in new interfaces for copyright selection, um, which is a, a legal function. You get breakthroughs in new ways of visualizing spend and, uh, and, and save efforts you know, on the procurement side that help motivate people to do things in different ways and make better decisions. Like It's just so exciting to me to see the mix uh, uh, that's about to happen as a result of that trend. Scott, what are the cultural prerequisites for that type of an environment to exist in your mind? Well, I think you have to have an organization that's committed to improvement and is open to change. So one of the things I've always actually liked about Adobe in particular is that it's a company that was born from foreign DNA and reinvented with many founding moments over the years. Photoshop was an acquisition. Um, Omniture, you know, was an acquisition that sort of changed our whole business. Behance obviously was an acquisition. Macromedia changed our whole business. And in each of these acquisitions, new DNA was brought into the company that ended up becoming empowered to be the leaders of the company. Um, and the culture changed. Most companies that I know of, when they acquire new people or companies, they're like, okay, now here's the way we do it. You know, forget everything you knew before. Adobe, for whatever reason, you know, probably dating back to the DNA set by its founders is a bit of the opposite. It's like, welcome. What can you teach us? You know, how are we going to have you become the leaders? How are we going to give you more responsibility? 
And it's a, it's a, it's a unique quirk. You know, every culture is different. It's one though that I think has helped us as a company um, stay relevant for 40 plus years in a world where a lot of old tech companies dissipate and become completely disrupted or marginalized. And, you know, Adobe by no means is perfect, but I do believe that that's like one, you know, one, one, one value or cultural element that helps, that helps with that. I think that, uh, I think that also it all goes down to the, the leader. And so to answer your question about the culture that fosters this form of cross-functional collaboration and appreciation of diversity. Do you have a leader who is investing their time in new ways of doing things or not, right? Um, do you have a leader who's committed to optimization or are they running things like a private equity shop and are just trying to squeeze out margin at this point and, you know, all bets are off the table of reinvention? Yeah, I, I love the uh, that you brought in, you know, acquisitions point because it, it is like if we look at status quo it's very rare right what you're talking about and yet if we think about that creative future that co-creative i mean if we're shaping culture together what better way uh, I, I was at apple as a, as a leadership coach and doing you know organizational work and you know the company acquired beats and that was something that you know they had their process and apple has a very focused process as far as engineering of products Right, so there was some friction initially to say, "Wow, what's going to happen here?" Now, Tim took Tim Cook took the approach of, "Hey, we're going to leave the brand a standalone," uh, and but it, it took a catalyzing leader, you know, catalyzing force in uh, Matthew Costello, who you know, ran Beats, and uh, there's kind of a whole backstory there about you know having you know, Dr. Dre on the on the on the on the employee directory, and you know, <laughs> like, who's this guy that you know you're, you work with? <laughs> oh, okay, that's Dre. Okay, uh, but to your point. Matthew took an approach that was uh, that catalyzed that cultural shift in a way that was very uh, impactful and useful for the company. Where you know, rather than say it's us and them, right? They've got to assimilate. It was let's see what happens if we shift leaders around, right? What if we have there you go. a team, right? Uh, a Beats leader leading a, an Apple team. What if we have you know an Apple team leading uh, Beats people, and we and we also frame this conversation around. We're one, right? And we're interested in let's what we can build together, right? What what you know? What's the best of right from each side? And that turned into some magical things. Um, but I think to your point, it could have gone the other way, right? If if a leader said no, it's you know just do it our way, period. And we've seen that play out, right? And we've seen how that movie ends. It's not very pleasant. Um, and again, that gets back, I think, to the hopeful future versus the dystopian future. And I think there's something to be said too about abundance, right? That gets lost. Um, we hear these narratives and they may relate to just resources in general from a humanity standpoint, but in the business context of, oh, there's not enough, you know, there's, you know, it, it's, you know, and it's, and, it, and we end up having, you know, it, there's businesses that end up staring at P&L sheets, you know, to try to innovate their way out of whatever they're in. And that's just not how it, how it works. And so to your point, I think there's some power in how do we bring people together to reimagine. And I love the notion too of this cross mixing of functions, uh, it, you know, as you're highlighting, it's like, those are, those are things that not, not every leader considers, but there's so much power in that crossover, uh, that can be unleashed. And it seems like it's, but it's, it's also believing in a longer view 
right? And right. I, what I've noticed and what, what we've seen from you know, the work you've done and, and what, you know, and definitely bootstrapping a company to get to where you did. Um, and, and not just that, but, you know, some of the, the story or the narrative, your narrative, your story was you had to work through all of, I mean, talk about the edge of reason, right? People saying, this is crazy, right? Like, what are you guys trying to build, right? Oh, it's a platform for creatives. Well, that doesn't exist, right? And and we know that, you know, just because people say it doesn't, it isn't there, doesn't mean you can't make a dent in the universe, which you did, but there takes, that takes a certain amount of determination, right? That, hey, your, your greatest warriors are time and patience. I'm curious about, you know, what was it about, how, how did you wrestle with that? And how did you have that point of view of staying determined, you know, despite the different voices and the, you know, kind of opposition to what you were doing? Well, a few cardinal things that I believe. Um, I believe that a labor of love always pays off, just not how you'd expect. And so I brought a group of people together that were there for the right reasons. They were just kind of obsessed with a similar problem or became obsessed, you know, based on my narrative. Um, and uh, I also believe that one of the greatest competitive advantages of any team is simply sticking together long enough to figure it out. It's uh, it's it's always alluring. You always feel like someone else is making more progress than you. There will always be another job out there that offers more um, to someone compensation-wise if you're good. And so at the end of the day, you have to have a team that just wants to stick together long enough to figure something out and values that as a tenant in and of itself. Um, I also have always tried to collapse the talent stack as much as possible. And what I mean by that is similar to what we were just discussing, instead of having people that have one discipline of expertise, I like to try people that, try to find people that have a few, whether it's a designer who can code or whether it's a product leader who's also a design background or whether it's a business leader, um, you know, who also was an engineer, you know, you, when you, when you collapse that talent stack, it's almost like you have tighter conduits between all the different functions of an organization and you can make like that much faster and better decisions as a result. And, uh, and so I think that the, the traditional notion of just hiring an expert in each function, as opposed to optimizing for the collapse, you know, is something that I always, that. always tried to do. And, um, you know, and, and, and I, and I also always tried to hire for initiative over experience when I would bring people on board as opposed to hiring that all-star that came in with some, you know, top high bar of expectations for, for, um, and for, uh, autonomy and, you know, and, and a little bit of an ego. I, I liked, I, I optimized for people who had a lot of initiative to learn things they didn't know and had a lot of things they didn't know, because I also found that that helped the, the, for the previous point of keeping the team together long enough to figure it out. You know, if people feel like their learning curve is steep, that's a form of compensation in and of itself that might drive retention. And so these are some of the things that, you know, I, I learned in the mix of, um, of defying, you know, the odds of Behance, which were pretty bad. You know, it was an idea to bring the creative world together. Um, people said, oh, there's no money in creatives uh, and creatives don't want to be organized. Oh, and by the way, there's already MySpace and DeviantArt and all these other websites that people make for themselves. Like, why would people want this new thing. Um, yet we were very tuned into the problems we were trying to solve. Creatives did not get attribution for their work. 
their portfolios were always out of date, hard to navigate, and inconsistently designed. And um, and there was very little uh, surface area of discovery for who for who did what in the in the world creatively. And so that was a square set of you know those are a clear set of problems that we just knew knew needed to be solved one way or another. That's that's incredible. Yeah, and and it's and it's really fun, just like stepping out of the kind of the 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 host role for a second. I love talking to people like you, Scott, because it's the more of these conversations we have, the more some common themes start to emerge. And as I'm hearing you talking about you know, looking for talent that doesn't just have one area of expertise, but maybe has multiple so that you can kind of compress that, that talent stack, as you called it, um, that, that principle came out pretty strongly in a conversation we had with, uh, with Randy Nelson, who was one of the early, um, employees at Pixar. And that was one of the things they looked for as well was breadth and depth, um, as well as, you know, inquisitive, inquisitiveness and, and being able to you know, ask questions and communicate well with others. And, um, you know, the things that you're talking about, I think are so timely because for many creatives, it's, it's a period of great uncertainty with the advent of many of the technologies that we're seeing here now. Um, probably most publicly right now is, is AI generated art. And, um, so I'm interested to know, you know, what you would say to, a creative who is deeply disturbed by these developments and, you know, what you might say to them about how, you know, the future is actually very bright and encouraging from sort of a creative um, standpoint. Well, you know, first of all, the, there is a, um, there is a crazy irony in all of this, right? Which is that we all took all of the work that we created all the posts that we wanted to write as bloggers, all the images we took as photographers, all the designs, we put them out there because that was the way that we, we found a path for career opportunity and opportunity, you know, and credit. And, uh, and then of course, suddenly these giant, you know, mega models are absorbing all of this training to, uh, somehow like compete with us. Right. And so there's, um, there's a dramatic shift that we just need to acknowledge is happening. There are models that are being trained and the cost of doing so is going down so significantly that we, we know there will be many and, um, and there will be companies that are ethical and try to leverage this technology in a way that respects the creative's wishes and also tries to compensate creatives for the use of their style. And then there are companies that just won't care or open source efforts that, you know, can't even be governed and constrained in that way. And so that's the inevitability, right? Uh, I hope to be a part of and to support the former. Like I want to be a part of organizations that say, wait, okay, if I want to, if I want to make, uh, you know, generate an image in the style of Ian Clausen, like I can do that and leverages his portfolio. And then, um, and then he gets credit and he gets actual compensation for me leveraging his style, right? To create something net new you know, based on his style. That probably is a better value proposition for Ian than some random open source model out there scraping his work and being able to do that in his name without his knowledge or attribution or compensation. 
And so there's new models that need to be unearthed. And in like in any trend in technology, if you stay stagnant, you get disrupted. If you are opportunistic and you tune into the needs and opportunities of customers, you 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 become a beneficiary a beneficiary. And so that's that's interesting to me. And there is by no means there's no doubt like there is opportunity here for creators. Now there's also though another consequence to this, which is um, both a positive and a negative, which is that general creative confidence across all people is going up. So, you know, I like to think about the kindergartner who scribbles a beautiful picture and she shows it to her parents and her teacher with such pride and no reservation. And then sadly in humanity, creative confidence goes down from there. As she starts to realize that there are critics in the world, there are other people who are doing better drawings than her. And, you know, and people, some people have skills that she doesn't. And suddenly we become less creatively confident and we no longer feel comfortable creating and sharing unless we endure the steep learning curves of those disciplines. What's amazing about some of this new technology is that it's boosting creative confidence generally. And, um, you know, just like any sport gets better over the decades because of the quality of tennis rackets and the quality of tennis shoes, the average tennis player does get better just by nature of the fact that they can hit the ball better and, and more, 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 more um, precisely just by default. Um, it also means that the best people in the game, they also get better. And so I think as creatives, we also have to be asking ourselves, how do we leverage this technology for our benefit? And how do we, in our process-oriented nature, as opposed to the outcome-oriented nature, how do we take it even further? I mean, the fact is, is that ideas these mega models, they can't come up with ideas and they can't be counterintuitive. They can only be intuitive, right? And so they can do the things that humans have always done. They can't do the things that humans have never done because it's trained on what humans have done. Uh, and so that's that's an opportunity for creators. And so listen, I'm a, I'm a pragmatic optimist. And what I mean by that is I'm always pessimistic or pragmatic about the present. And I'm always optimistic about the future. And it's almost like a religious belief for me. Like that's the way we should be living our lives. And so I am concerned currently about some of the ways these models have been trained, the lack of attribution, the lack of copyright control. I have a lot of concerns for the creative community in the current stance of how this all technology works. I'm also optimistic that we will find ways for creatives to benefit. Yeah, it, it reminds me, um, you're, you're a wonderful storyteller, by the way. You know, um, one of the concepts that, emerged from the messy middle is culture is formed by the stories your team tells leaders can create experiences and situations that improve the stories being told. And I think you had some excellent, um, descriptions of your leadership or other leaders, uh, that you've come across that have tried to create these experiences for your teams. I think, um, how can we also empower just regular team members to become storytellers of the culture as well and not just rely solely on on the leader although it's highly important hmm. that a leader sets the tone no it's it's a it's a great question and as you were speaking i was thinking back to the 5 years of bootstrapping behinds that were you know, there were some lost years in there as we call them lost years of behinds where we just basically went sideways we rebuilt the same thing three times we we're rudderless. We were doing too many projects. We had to kill. Like there were some lost years there. Yet somehow we kept the entire team together during those lost years. And it was really the quirks of the team, the stories, the traditions, the 
you know, we used to come to work at 11 and then work until like, you know, 10 or 11 at night. And we had a shifted clock. And so we decided to start our day every day eating salads together for breakfast, basically. And it was like a, it was like a weird quirk, you know, we made all kinds of bets and deals, you know, and, and sort of like little, little guesses with each other as to when we would hit certain milestones. And we would optimize for those synthetic rewards, if you can call them that, as opposed to the very distant, oh, someday we'll actually be a profitable business and someday we'll have some exit sometime, which we really never talked about. It was actually just about the near-term goals and the and and really the fun that we had together that became our culture. Um, and it was an aggregate of stories. It was an aggregate of personalities and memories and little traditions and, and quirks. Um, and it's, uh, you know, and you think about like what makes a great movie, a great movie, you know, has a fascinating plot line and a plot twist. It has really interesting characters that are developed and then repeated, you know, uh, throughout the movie so that the viewer becomes familiar and, you know, and, and it develops some sort of emotional resonance with the story and the people. I don't think any team is any different. It's if you clock in and clock out, people will switch the channel. That's why I'm actually skeptical of the completely remote, uh, uh, workforce, because how do you build the stories in between the seams of the experience that make people emotionally connected to one another? And sure, there are ways with offsites and other sorts of tools, but it takes more work. Whereas if you're all working together, it sort of happens automatically, you know, with the right people and the right, you know, the right values. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Scott Belsky for the conversation today. Scott has two national best-selling books, Making Ideas Happen and The Messy Middle available wherever books are sold. You can also keep up with Scott by subscribing to his popular newsletter, Implications. Just head to implications.com. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for being with us.